Would you turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Philippians? Philippians. If you... If, you're, if you haven't figured out how to get there yet, you're not super familiar with your Bible, you know, finding stuff, you kind of can find the New Testament, right? I mean, that's generally, it's, it's somewhere, you know, boom, I'm in the New Testament, and it just goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, right? Those are the Gospels, and then it goes Acts, and then Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and then it's Go Eat Popcorn, right? So it's, and that's an acronym for... Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So hopefully that's what I used in the early days when I was trying to find books. And then you got to remember the rest, a bunch of T's follow Titus and Thessalonians and all that. But you can, you start to put them together and you can actually uh, have familiarity where, where the, at least the New Testament books are. 27 of them. All right, Philippians chapter one. If you're using one of those blue church Bibles, it's page 980. Page 980 will bring you there. So last week, I introduced you to, uh, to, to this New Testament letter, which is titled Philippians, Philippians in our English Bibles. As a reminder, just a reminder of some of the things we spoke about in the introduction, this was written by Paul to the church uh, that was located in the city of Philippi, and it was likely written somewhere around the time of 61 A.D., which would have been about 10 years after the church had first been established by Paul. So this is 10 years later. And in our introduction to the letter, we took a, a quick look at three major themes found within it. In other words, the letter kind of revolves around these things. You'll keep, see them keep coming up. The first theme that we looked at was joy. As I said, this letter oozes. It oozes with joy. It's a joyful letter. It's joy that is due mostly to uh, the reality of the Philippian church's partnership with Paul in the gospel and the progress that the gospel was continuing to make. That's, where, that's what the joy is primarily centered on and, and coming from, where it's coming from. Um, the second theme of the letter I talked about I spoke about with you is, is the gospel. It is the gospel. It is referred to in one way or another over and over again in this letter. And I would encourage you, there's just four chapters. You, you could probably read through the letter in 15, 20 minutes, maybe a little longer, maybe a little less, depending on how quickly you read. But it would be good for you just in preparation for uh, us looking at it verse by verse, just read through the letter uh, on Saturday night or Sunday morning. And it'll be helpful to you to see all these things and keep, keep the letter uh, together as one, it is one letter, uh, and it'll just help you understand it better. So joy, the gospel. Finally, the third theme that we briefly discussed is unity, unity. One could conclude from reading the letter that there was some measure of disunity in the church, in this church in Philippi, which would, if left unchecked, hinder or get in the way of the advancement of the gospel. So, I don't know, you may have caught something here, but it seems like everything is centered around the gospel in one way or another. Joy from the gospel, the gospel itself being spoken of in a variety of ways, and then even the issue of unity, the concern there is that it would hinder the work if, it, if there was disunity or it continued, it would hinder the work of the gospel, the progress of the gospel. As one writer points out, it does not take much 
reading of Paul's letters, which this is one of them, New Testament letters, to recognize that the gospel is the singular passion of his life. That passion is the glue that in particular holds this letter together. And I would agree. If I had to just say one, there was one overriding theme, it would be, it would be the gospel. So, as uh, now after you know, that introduction, what we're going to do is just jump into the letter and we're going to take a look at the first six verses with a special emphasis on verse six. All right? That's what we'll do this morning. So, as is the case with other New Testament letters, there's a formula that you'll see that's repeated over and over again. The letters begin with from. Who's the letter from? Then it's to. Who's the letter to? And then there's usually some type of greeting of some sort, basic greeting. So who's, this is who's writing the letter. This is who it's directed to. These are the recipients of the letter. And here's a kind opening word to the recipients of the letter. So I'll read verse 1 and 2 because that's where we find that formula being played out as it is in other uh, letters, New Testament letters and ancient letters at that time. And I'll provide a little commentary as we read through verses 1 and 2, okay? Good to go? You ready? Hmm? Yeah? Good? All right, good. Here we go. Looking at verse 1, Paul and Timothy stop. So again, just I'm going to do some com- running commentary, and then we'll jump into three and four. I have to stop, because I said this is the from, right? But this letter is not co-authored by Timothy. Uh, it's not Paul and Timothy. Uh, they're not co-authors of this letter, even though it says Paul and Timothy. We know that as we read through the letter, you'll see singular pronouns. It's I, it's I, it's I. Paul's not saying we, we. But here it says Paul and Timothy. So why? Why is he including Timothy's name? Well, I'll say probably he included Timothy's name in the from because Timothy was known by the church in Philippi in that Timothy served with Paul when the church was first established, which you can find that information in Acts 16. Timothy was with Paul at the time. He picked him up and included him as part of his ministry team and uh, would have certainly been there when the church was planted uh, in Philippi. And... Uh, Paul, Timothy, as we read in Acts, had made subsequent visits to the church as well. So they know Timothy. He, he's known to them. He's not a stranger. And he was an important part of everything that went on, had gone on there. And also, Timothy was with Paul when this letter was written. And we, we know that even just based on the letter itself. We see that in chapter 2, verse 23. That is, Timothy was in Rome helping Paul in various ways while Paul was in Rome under house arrest. And it's also a possibility that we don't know for sure, but it's certainly possible that Timothy assisted Paul by actually writing the letter as it was dictated to him by Paul, which was a a practice. So he would have, Paul would have uh, recited the letter and, and Timothy was writing it down, but the author of the letter, human author anyway, is Paul, okay? Paul and Timothy, servants, literally slaves. That's the word. Paul and Timothy, servants, slaves of Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is their divine master, 
This title that they take unto themselves speaks to the fact that they were not living for themselves, but rather for him, for Christ Jesus, who had redeemed them, bought them, so that they could and would serve him with their very lives, with their very lives. I wonder, you know, even when we're thinking about ourselves, do we think of ourselves in that way? Servants, slaves of Christ Jesus, our master, the one who hath purchased us and the one to whom we owe our very lives in all of our devotion and service. You know, when you think of a master, you're, you're to align yourself. If you have a master, you're not your own master. If you have a master, you're to align yourself with your master's will. Your will is subjugated to your master's will, Yes. I wonder if we think of ourselves in that way. We should. Um, we should. And then we should act accordingly. Because that's what God has done in saving us. He has placed us under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And Jesus laid down his very life. He purchased us with his own blood. With his own blood. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints, in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi. Saints. Saints in Christ Jesus. This is not, and should not be understood in, in this way. She's such a saint. You know, have you heard someone say that? Or maybe you've said that. She or he, they're such a saint. They're such a saint, right? Paul, that's not the way you should understand that word. Paul was for sure not thinking, when he said that, of a, of a select group of Christians at the church who were uh, super holy or especially kind or moral, but rather, this word was the customary word for Christians. It's used over 60 times in the New Testament to refer to Christians. Christian, that word, it occurs only three times, but more often than not, we refer to ourselves as Christians, which is fine, which is fine. It's an accurate title as well, but it would, it would serve us well to to think of ourselves as saints, as saints in, in a biblical way. Uh, the word in describing Christians could be explained as meaning this, believing sinners who, in and through Christ, have been set apart to and for God. That's a Christian. Believing sinners in and through Christ who have been set apart through Christ's saving and sanctifying work, set apart to God for his service, to serve him, to fulfill his will, and for God, having fellowship with him, to worship him, to adore him. That's the Christian. He's a slave. He's a saint. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Who are those folks? Well, this refers to certain saints in the church who first serve by leading, serve by leading. They serve that local body there by leading. That is the overseers. Again, we've talked about this at length as we looked at Titus, but overseers, another title for that position in the church would be elder. Another title for that very same position would be shepherd. 
another title for that very same position, office, if you will, in the church, would be pastor. Pastor. These overseers serve the church by leading. And then you have those who lead by serving. Those would be the deacons. They lead in that body, in that fellowship, in a church. They lead the way by serving the body in very practical ways, assisting the elders in ministering to the body of Christ. So they're the leadership. So to all the saints and the leadership, the leading men there at Philippi. And then finally, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the greeting, the greeting. Now, with verse 3, we begin to look at the body of the letter, the body of the letter. So, let me read verses 3 through 5. Philippians 1, 3 through 5. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. From the first day until now. Verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel. Another way to translate that, another translation of it, uh, says your participation in the gospel. Thank you, brother. Your participation in the gospel. As I mentioned before, uh, as I mentioned before, last time and today, Paul established this church about 10 years prior to the writing of this letter when he preached the gospel in Philippi and a number of men and women believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, were baptized, and then began to meet and worship and follow the Lord together. Church, a local congregation of followers of Christ, serving together. Church. And at the time of their salvation, they in one sense became partners or participants with Paul in the gospel, in the gospel. I think that is one way to, to understand what Paul is saying when he speaks of their partnership in the gospel. It's not the only way, but it's one way. One commentator, it's a little long, but I, wanna, I think it's helpful in, in understanding that phrase, because of your partnership in the gospel, because of your participation in the gospel, uh, in understanding that. He says this, Standing behind the English word partnership, partnership that we see there in the ESV, is the Greek word. Now, I don't know, Thomas, you could correct me if, um, if you would like, if I need to be corrected. I, I've always heard it pronounced koinonia, koinonia, but I, I, I checked, and they're pronouncing it kinonia, kinonia. What do you like? What do you prefer? Koinonia. Let's run with that, okay? Because the other guy, he probably doesn't know what he's talking about, right? <laughs> Although it was Logos, I'm just saying. So you have to check that. Anyway, so, but I've always heard it pronounced koinonia. Koinonia, you've, maybe you've heard that. And, and often you, you, they've given that title to fellowship groups, uh, small groups, koinonia, because the word has that idea of fellowship, fellowship. But it, it really implies a variety, this, this Greek word that's underlying the word partnership, it implies a variety of close relationships, of close relationships, and, and specifically involving mutual interest and sharing. Think of it that way. Close relationships involving mutual interest and sharing in, in something, in something, um, in goals or 
purpose, purposes. So the, the commentator goes on to say marriage and family relationships, friendships, business partnerships, common ownership of property, citizenship, and religious organizations were all considered examples of koinonia, koinonia. He goes on to say the kind of koinonia enjoyed by Paul and the Philippians in their partnership in the gospel, their koinonia in the gospel, is first of all a close association as friends who share a common faith in the gospel, a common faith in the gospel. This is, this is what unites them together. This is what uh, is their mutual interest. Their friendship, he goes on to say, started on the first day that Paul brought the gospel to them, which was 10 years ago. And they responded positively. Their faith in the gospel brought them into mutual participation in the benefits of the gospel with Paul. The same benefits of the gospel that Paul had been experiencing were now being experienced by his friends who had embraced that very same gospel. There was a mutual interest in sharing in the gospel because of their faith in Christ. He goes on to say, they shared in the same experience of the grace of forgiveness and the peace of a covenant relationship with God, all made possible through the events of the cross and the resurrection of Christ proclaimed in the gospel. The koinonia, he says further, initially formed by mutual participation in the benefits of the gospel, developed quickly into a koinonia to advance the proclamation of the gospel. In other words, they joined him in the benefits by believing in Jesus Christ of the gospel, and as a result, they too began to do what he was doing because of his love for the gospel and the impact the gospel had on him, and that was proclaiming it and looking to advance it, just as he was. Mutual interest and sharing. That was the relationship centered around and in the gospel. This commentator goes on to say that a false dichotomy or a false division is set up by some who interpret the phrase partnership in the gospel to mean participation in salvation and by others who take this phrase as a reference to cooperation in the work of evangelism. In other words, some will suggest it's one or the other when he talks about them being partners, that Paul is only thinking about the fact that they are helping him make the gospel known, advance the gospel. Yes, they are. And that is included in this idea of koinonia, mutual interest uh, and sharing, cooperation in the same work and advancing of the gospel. Others might say it's, it's just speaking of the fact that they are participating with Paul, they are partners in the gospel in the sense of they both are experiencing the benefits of the gospel through salvation. But it's both, beloved. There's no reason to not think it's not both. He goes on to say, for if there had not been, and he makes an argument for why we should understand it to be both, for if there had not been personal appropriation, that is the act of taking something to oneself for their own use, if there had not been personal appropriation of the gospel in the first place, there would not have been support for the propagation of the gospel, the spread. If they didn't first believe it 
and experience the changed nature that the gospel brings when believed, that salvation that gives you new desires and new affections and new passions and new goals, there would not have been the spread of the gospel. They never would have entered into that. That would not have been the desire of their heart to spread the gospel. It was only because they believed the gospel and now it has begun to change them and reset their priorities that they are now, along with Paul, focused on making the gospel known and advancing, seeing it progress, either there in the city of Philippi or wherever Paul, the one who planted the church, is going, helping him in his ministry to advance the gospel. There's this common interest, this shared goal. There is koinonia. He goes on to say, their faithfulness in the work of proclaiming the gospel was evidence of the reality of their personal participation by faith in the benefits of the gospel. And so we see in many ways they, they looked to advance the gospel. He goes on to point out the Philippians actively participated in Paul's mission to spread the gospel by their prayers for him in, the, in his affliction, which we'll see in chapter 1, verse 19 also by their own suffering for their faith in Christ in the face of opposition. We see that in chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Also by their radiant witness, witnessing to the glory that Christ is and to the gospel and the sinner's need to believe in Christ. We see that in chapter 2, 15 and 16. And we see it by the mission of Epaphroditus on their behalf to care for Paul's needs while in prison. That's the occasion for this letter. They had sent one of their own there to help Paul in his imprisonment to assist him so that he would be strengthened to continue advancing the gospel. And we see that in 2.25 through 30. And, of course, at the very end of the letter, by their regular financial support of Paul. They continued to contribute to his needs so that he could continue to advance the gospel. We see that in chapter 4, verses 10 through 18. The writer says it is important to appreciate the breadth of the Philippians' involvement in this partnership in the gospel so that it is not reduced to either their belief in the message of salvation in Christ or their financial support of Paul's mission to preach the gospel. It's both. It's all. It's broad, this partnership in the gospel. In many ways, they supported Paul, and they are united with Paul in the benefits that they also are receiving and the transformation that's occurring in their life through the gospel. He goes on to say, since the day of personal appropriation of the gospel until now, they had continued to believe in the gospel and support the propagation of the gospel. The Philippians koinonia in the appropriation and proclamation of the gospel filled Paul with joyful thankfulness whenever he thought of them. That's what drove it. That's what drove it. These are partners with me in the gospel. We, we have this common interest now of faith in Christ and the benefits of that faith and the desire now that God has given us to make that known. And that was, brought, was what brought such great joy to Paul. And it wasn't a one-time shot in the pan, lasting one week, they got all fired up, let's do Jesus, you know, no, this is 10 years from the first day until now, you've stayed the course, you've continued to believe, you've continued to trust in him, and you've continued to work in many ways to make him known. 
And that brought Paul great, great joy. And as I said before, I, you know, what is it that brings us joy? And there may be many things, of course, but is it that? Is that, would that be the, you know, you have those, this, man, this was a good week, or this is the highlight of my month, or, and, and there may be many things that you might speak of, but for Paul, he's in prison, but it matters not when he thinks of the Philippians. And again, this is, he has this occasion to think of them again because he, they're again sending him help, Epaphroditus. And it just reminds him of, of all the work that they've been doing and, and the special relationship that he has with them because of the gospel that has brought them together as friends and as brothers and sisters in Christ, as a, as a family with a common cause and a common purpose, and they've been doing it. They've been working hard at it, loving Jesus and making him known. I mean, what's more important? Another writer says, just summarizing that whole thing, the Philippians had shared with Paul in the gospel, first by believing it and being saved then by devoting themselves to it and all that it entails. Like all who are truly saved, they were not just occasional dabblers in religion. <laughs> Rather, they were vitally joined together with the apostle in the great cause of Jesus Christ so that he could rightly refer to them as participants and partners in the gospel. Beloved, that's real church, just in case you're missing it. That's real church. For some, church is anything but that, in their mind anyway. You know, it's a social gathering. It's a check mark off your list of something you, you think you're supposed to do. It's a Sunday-only reality. It's a place to meet nice people. I mean, hopefully, but I mean, ho I mean, I hope so. But that is not what it is primarily about. I mean, some people just go looking for a church to find a mate. You know, they they're, they're, they go from one church to the other because they're hoping to find a mate that won't hurt them, and they're thinking, well, maybe at a church, a Christian church, you know, that's. Yeah, I hope you find a good mate. But that, that's not the purpose. There's this koinonia, this fellowship. It's, it's living out the gospel. It's making the gospel known. It's joining arms together. It's fighting for that cause together. That's, that's what God intended for church. For church. It's locking arms together. It's, it's being careful to, to not let anything get in the way of the mission that you have been called to and purchased for in Christ. Church is not a place for you to get some relief from your guilt for living in sin Monday through Saturday. You know, I'll go to church, maybe I feel better now. But that's not what this, it's not about that. I know people do that, but it, 
It's not that. It's something much greater, much grander. Verse 6. And I am sure of this. So as he's, you know, he's just expressed his, he opens the letter right after the greeting. The first thing he comes out with is, man, I just want you to know, every time I remember you guys, I'm giving God thanks. I'm praising him. I'm praying for you and I'm praising him for your partnership in the gospel. Just the, what I've seen Christ do in you and is doing through you. That's what it's about. Fighting to make him known. Living, living out the gospel life that others might be drawn to the, the glory that the gospel is. The, drawn to our Savior. Our superior Savior. And in light of that, he, he just digresses, it, it appears maybe for a moment, and says, and in verse 6, and I, and I am sure of this, as he's just thinking about what God has done and is doing from the first day until now, you've continued to believe, you've continued to promote and advance the gospel, you've continued to be such a, a vital part in, in my ministry that God has given me, Paul, to advance the gospel because we are like-minded in this way, we are Koinonia, we have a mutual interest and common purpose. And, and he says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And of course, he can say, he can say these kind of things because this was not a, like I said, a, and I'm probably using the illustration wrong, a, a fly in the pan. I can't, I don't know how, you know, a fire in the pan help somebody you know like it it just shows up like a shooting star babe i know it's i'm terrible right now she's i'm looking at her she's like i can't help you i have no idea what you're saying but uh a shot in the pan that's not the right thank you i knew the cook would help me so the, it's not a flash in the pan fly by the night kind of uh organization here right 10 years at least at least right around 10 years they've been proclaiming the gospel they've been helping paul they've been believing their they're getting pushback uh, for there in, in that Roman province in Philippi. Uh, they're getting pushback. They're, they're suffering for the cause of Christ, and they stay the course. So he can say, I'm sure of this. He knows that these are, these are bona fide, true believers of Jesus Christ, followers of him. And so he can say, I'm sure of this, that he would begin a good work in you. And he, he can see it. It's evident. Ten years they've been at it. He's going to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. From the first day until now, you've been faithful. And he just did, he goes right to the very end. And God's going to bring it to completion the day of Jesus Christ. I'm sure of this. Now, this good work Paul refers to here, I think you should be able to just understand from everything we've talked about already what it is he's talking about. But it would be best understood as the salvation of God. The salvation of God, that's the, the good work that immediately began doing its good work in the Philippians when they embraced the gospel 10 years ago. And this sanctifying, transforming, life-altering, Christ-conforming work 
will, Paul says, I am sure of this, continue until completion. That is when Christ, as promised in the scriptures, returns for his bride, the church. And at that time, completes the good work of God. Entirely sanctifies and conforms his bride to his image. As we see promised in Romans 8, 29. Now, let's talk about this good work. Can we do that? Is that okay? That'll be the focus. Talk a little bit more about it. Why does Paul have confidence that the good work of salvation that began in them would ultimately be brought to completion? That the work that had begun would not stop until the project was completed? Why? Here's why. Here's a different translation and just it emphasizes the he by putting the name for he there so you can't miss it. Because he says, I'm sure of this, that he who began, who's he? Well, here's another translation. And I am certain that God, that God, that's who he is, who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Beloved, Paul's confidence is found in the one who is the head of the work. May I say it this way? There is no greater foreman. Is that right, foreman? Is that Wes, is that okay, foreman? With a, a foreman, that's the guy, right? He's in charge of the, is there anybody higher than, is there another word? Huh? Oh boy, I shouldn't have asked. But let's just go with my my the 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 up the uppermost foreman, the one the one who's large and in charge, is that we used to say back in the business world. Who's large and in charge? Okay, the one there is no greater larger in charger guy, the one who's running the deal, the one who's responsible to make sure the work gets done, that the project gets completed, right? You remember, you remember, uh, maybe you remember the housing market boom? And you saw all, especially here in Fontana, and man, bricks went up around and fencing and stuff, and then the ground started to get leveled in all these areas, and then the housing market crashed. And what happened? Yeah, so many projects left undone, right? So sometimes you might have a good foreman, but things that are, are beyond his control, like the market collapsing, right? He has every intention, every desire to complete the project, but... He's not super all-powerful, so things come into the situation that make it impossible for him to complete the project. Forget, and beside all that, you have a lot of foremen that probably aren't that great and don't care about, you know, so much, ah, we get it finished, we get it finished, or they're not super concerned about whether they get it finished on time, at the right time, right? Not even concerned about how well it gets done. You know what I'm saying, Wes? You know, you've seen those guys, right? Not this one. Not this righteous, all-powerful, sovereign foreman, or whatever word you want to stick in there. You don't like foreman. Salvation of the sinner is God's project, beloved, from beginning to end. And in fact, you see that. You see that, right? It says in Philippians 1.6, And I'm sure of this, that he who began, right, this is interesting, because it's not just a matter of, well, he'll, he'll, he'll complete what you started. 
you know? I mean, right? I mean, it was on you. It was all about you and your decision, and, and then, you know, he'll, he'll make sure, he'll come alongside and help you get there. He'll help you complete what you start. No, it's not. That's not. You won't see that in the scriptures. It says he began. This work that will be completed, and Paul is certain of that, is a work that God began. One writer says this, the verb begin, it's translated begin, the verb means to inaugurate, to inaugurate, and the tense that's used points to a decisive and deliberate act. He goes on to say, here was something planned and executed to perfection. The Philippian woman, and I hope you read it, I, told, I asked you to read Acts 16, I don't know if you did, but if you didn't, read it this week, read the entire chapter, I think 11 or 12 is where we pick up the account of uh, Philippi, but Acts 16, you'll pick up on Timothy and all such. You know what, just read the book, just read all of Acts, but if you can't do that, read Acts 16, it'd be good for you to read it, it'd be good for you to read it. He says the Philippian woman, Lydia, exactly illustrates this inauguration of the good work. Lydia was a convert to Christ there in Philippi when Paul showed up on his missionary journey and that church was established after a number of men and women believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and were baptized and then came together at Koinonia as partners in the gospel ministry or in the gospel. He goes on to say, Paul's message at Philippi focused on salvation, and we may be sure that what he said to the jailer, great story, because Paul ends up in jail there, but uh, so what? Another opportunity to preach the gospel, you know? All right. Well, who's my audience? Okay. It, it just, just, that's, it, nothing seemed to phase the guy, or I should say, take him off course. I'm sure he was you know, feeling nervous and scared at times and hurting and in pain and even sorrow, but nothing took him off course. He remained fixed on this passion. So it goes on to say, Paul's message at Philippi focused on salvation. We be sure that what he said to the jailer, he had previously said to Lydia and the other women gathered at the place of prayer where he found Lydia. And it would have been this. This is what he said to the jailer when he asked, how can I be saved? And he said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. He goes on to say, no doubt Lydia could remember the date of her conversion and tell the story of how she had put her trust in Jesus. But when that same story is told in Acts, it is, not, it is cast not in terms of the faith that she exercised. It is not. That is not what you read there. What do you read there? Acts 16. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gates to the riverside there in Philippi. Where we, were, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. He's going to preach the gospel. He wants to make it known. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to preach. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. So understand, she was a worshiper of God, but had not yet embraced Christ as the Messiah and as her Savior. So Paul is going to tell her about this risen Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, whose name is Jesus. And it says, 
the Lord, this is, what, this is the next thing you read, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And then just 15, and after she was baptized. Why would she be baptized? Baptism was her demonstrating her faith in this Messiah, Jesus. Her commitment to him. So it's, it's just, it's there. It's not all there, but basically he opened her heart, she believed, and she followed, demonstrated by the fact that she was immediately baptized. The writer goes on to say, instead of, instead of the story in Acts speaking of, it's not spoken in terms of faith she exercised, rather it says, as we just read, the Lord opened her heart to give heed to what was said by Paul. It was he, God, who began the good work. This is the true inner story of every conversion. It is a work of God originating before the foundation of the world when he chose us in Christ, us who are believers, trusting in Jesus, following him. Where do we read that? Ephesians 1. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, not ours, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Commenting on this, one writer says, and he says, salvation would be a wretchedly unsure thing if it had no other foundation than my having chosen Christ. The human will blows hot and cold, is firm and unstable by fits and starts. It offers no security of tenor. But it is the will of God that is the ground of salvation. No one would be saved had not the Lord been moved by his own spontaneous and unexplained love to choose his people before the world was. And at the decisive moment to open our hearts to hear, understand, and accept the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. This then is assurance God has willed my salvation. He began it, and because he began it, he's going to see it through, and so he continues it. He begins it, he continues it. The whole project is under his control according to his will. He will bring it to completion. He started it, he will finish it. That's why there's assurance. That's why there can be assurance. That's why a believer can have security. That's the only reason a believer can have security. He says concerning this, this phrase, we'll bring it to completion, this commentator, he says the verb is intensive in form and, and can here express a continuous sense. And he, he, he phrases it this way, it's beautiful, he will evermore put his finishing touches to it. I like that. He will evermore put his finishing touches to it, this good work of salvation that he began in us. 
He says the assurance God gives us not only guarantees the outcome, it guarantees to every experience of every day, for in all things God is putting the finishing touches on it. And that's, that's important to understand because he goes on to say good news, bad news, difficulty, blessing, unexpected happiness, unexpected trouble. It all has a purpose. God is using all things. Right? All things. He's, he's got this. He's totally in charge of the project. Your life. And in your life, he's using all things to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. He is moving you from left to right to his intended purpose. To be like Christ. Why put it there? I mean, he could have just moved on. You know, why, why make this statement of assurance? That's a good question. I mean, it's certainly, it's glorious. It's one of those passages that many Christians are familiar with because of what it indicates, the assurance that a Christian can have that, listen, you know, I mean, even like even in our own doubts and stuff, you know, I'm following after Christ, I'm believing in him, but ah, why aren't things going at, at this why, are, why am I troubling? Why am I having these troubles and these setbacks? And, and so you look at a passage like this, you can be sure of this. That is if you are in Christ. That is if you are in Christ, you can be sure of this, that he, will, he who begin a good work and you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will do it. He will see it through. He will get you there. And of course, we can have a whole other conversation, right, about the way he goes about doing that because he... He wants your cooperation in this project. He wants your cooperation in this project. In fact, it will go much better for you if you fully cooperated with the foreman in completing the project. Uh, he has his ways of non-cooperation, of addressing those, right? Because uh, uh, what you're not going to find on this project is uh, a union rep that you can run to to try to make your case for uh, the treatment that you're getting from the foreman. No, he's going to take you in. He's going to deal with you. He's, gonna, he's not going to have to fill out 25,000 forms. I'm doing this all for you, babe. He has to fill out 25,000 forms and, you know, oh, this is a union rep here, blah, blah, blah. No, he's just going to bring you in. He's going to discipline you if you are his. He's going to deal with you. He's going to complete this project one way or another. So it would be good for you to... Get on board with God's will for your life, which is conforming you to the image of Christ. And he brings all kinds of things into your life for that very purpose, like we've been discussing in Real Change, this heat, all of it designed to move you closer to him, to draw out that part of you that he doesn't want there anymore so that you can see it, so that you can repent of it, and so that you can, again, walk according to Christ, manifesting the fruits of the Spirit. So, but this is, this is a, again, you know, a, a passage that people cling to and, and for all these good reasons and remembering that he's going to see it through. He's going to see it through. I'm, it's not done yet. He will get me there. And, and I, as I said, he doesn't do it passively. You just don't sit there and wait for it to happen. But that's another discussion. We'll get to that because Paul will address it, that you've got to work out your salvation in fear and trembling for God is at work in you. And so there's a balance there. We get it. We see we will see, but why here? Why, why say that as he's just expressing thankfulness well, for these Philippians? And man, I just, every time I remember you, I'm joy, joy, thankfulness, thankful joy as I'm 
petitioning God on your behalf. I'm thanking him for what he has done in you, is doing in you, and I know will do in you. I'm thinking. And, and so he, he, he stops and he says, I know, I know I'm sure of this. I'm sure of this, Philippians. That good work that God began in you, he's going to see it through. He's going to bring it to completion. Why might he do that? Well, the Philippians were facing troubles. Yeah? They had troubles on the inside of the body. There was some divisiveness. There was some trouble, some conflicts within the church that might have been, you know, church is going strong all of a sudden. What's going on here? What's happening? Why are people fighting? Why, is there, why are these disagreements? And then there's troubles on the outside too. There's pressures. They're, they live in a Roman province, pagan, and uh, they don't like Christians. And they're beginning to experience the same sufferings that Paul, as Paul will say, that he, they saw Paul experience when he first came there and got locked up and is now experiencing being locked up, meaning they're trying to shut the gospel down and shut those who adhere to the gospel. And so I think this is just a, a beautiful, right out of the gate of the letter, an encouragement to these, this dear church that he loves so much. And and his partners with, and has been partners with in the gospel, that it encourages them with the truth about the certainty of their ultimate salvation. It doesn't matter. This stuff's going to happen. These, these problems are going to occur. But in the end, you can know this with certainty. God will see this through. He began a good work in you, and he will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And really, I think that's what drives Paul. It's always this future looking unto Christ and unto the ultimate end and goal, right? That's what's driving him. And that hopefully, I don't think it always drives us, honestly. I think more it's more about like here and now. We're not thinking long term. But Paul was always thinking long term. And he's trying to just get his Philippians think, you know what? Regardless of the circumstances, the present circumstances, you can know this, you can know this. My partner's in the gospel. God is going to see it through. He'll bring you through it all. He will achieve this great purpose of his making you like his son glorifying you and giving you eternal life forever. One writer says, believers in Christ are people of the future. People of the future. A sure future. Yes. That has already begun in the present. They are citizens of heaven, as Paul will say in chapter 3, verse 20, who live the life of heaven, the life of the future, in the present, in whatever circumstances they find themselves. He goes on to say, to lose this future orientation, which we often do, and especially to lose the sense of straining toward what is ahead, toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called us heavenward, which is what Paul says in chapter 3, 13 and 14. It is to lose too much. Thus, Paul, triggered by their present gift, which also reminds Paul of their long association in the gospel. Paul digresses momentarily to remind them that even in the midst of present difficulties, God has in Christ both guaranteed their future and blessed their present situation and predicament. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and just ask, Father, we trust, we trust you'll continue to do your good work in us. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who bought us, purchased us with his very blood, that we might serve him with these present lives. 
In Christ's name, amen.